Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we uh, even have sung, we can come to you uh, and bring our come personally in your presence and bring our requests as well. Uh, during the offertory, we saw that, that uh, uh, to come before you, Father, and to know that you love us with an everlasting love and you care, and you also are sovereignly involved in everything that touches our life. And Father, uh, in behalf of the body of Christ here, uh, I say for their sake as well, thank you for uh, being merciful to Steve. We pray that very soon he'll be able to leave the hospital and be back home with his wife and family there. And Lord, you'll just uh, uh, keep on filling his heart with encouragement. Father, uh, we pray too for uh, Keith. We know that he and Linda are going through deep waters right now. And there are others, Father, that are, are dealing with some severe things in their lives. Many of them are dealing with physical maladies, but others have spiritual battles they're dealing with. And uh, we just would hold each one of them up before you, Lord, as you bring them to our heart and mind. And we would pray that, Father, they will find your grace is fully sufficient. May you nurture them in your word and give them a comfort and direction and strength from that. And uh, may you draw them to yourself in prayer and encourage them with brothers and sisters who surround them and bear them up before you as well, as it says in James chapter 5. Father, we would pray for those on the front lines of the mission field. Uh, I think of the Goheens and uh, just watching again that video and all they're going through. And, And Lord, sometimes it's discouraging over there. It's a long jaunt and journey to get the language down, to get acceptance by the tribe, to uh, be able to make inroads. And and they long with their whole heart to tell that tribe of people, of lost people about you, Lord Jesus Christ, and help them to understand who you are and their great need for you and how you can take their sin away and give them eternal life and they can know the one true God of the whole universe. And how we pray that, Lord, you'll cause these dear missionaries to hang in there, protect them, empower them. Uh, Just uh, may we hold the lifeline back here in faithfully praying for them. Uh, I think of Joe and Cassandra down in Northern California, Lord, and, and it's a joy having read about their ministry and how you're blessing them and how they're growing in you. And may you continue to do that. But we know that around the corner, hidden behind that bush, so to speak, is the enemy. And he hates when we move forward and bear much fruit. So he tries to discourage us. He tries to get us down in defeat. He tries to get us, Lord, so that we give up on you and our faith begins to wane. And and uh, I just would pray, Father, that again, that you'll uh, protect them and encourage them and strengthen them and empower them and cause them to grow in your grace and knowledge. And may that be true of us here as well. Father, for those who might be visiting this morning, you know their needs. And I would pray that along with myself and the others that faithfully attend here, that you would also bless them. May they walk out of here saying, I got a little taste of heaven. I I was encouraged today. My spirit was lifted up. God spoke to my heart through his living word. And, And I can go through the week now with him being encouraged. And Father, for one who might be here that doesn't know you yet and doesn't know the terrible situation, the terror of where they stand before you as an unsaved person, Oh, how we would pray that that blindness would be taken away, that deception that Satan is so masterful at presenting would be removed 
and that they would know that they can come to saving faith and know that they have eternal life and be delivered out of an eternal hell and damnation into the very glories of heaven and know that they can now make that journey with you as our God and Savior. So speak to our heart. Lord, we're in an incredible portion of Scripture. Just work in, uh, down in our lives, I pray. And may we keep on growing, therefore, in your grace and knowledge, Lord Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, you'll be glad to know that this Sunday now, and the Lord willing, next Sunday, we're going to conclude this series, Come Grow With Me. Now, here's the thing about that, though. That doesn't mean you stop growing, okay? This means that you are going to now put this to work in your lives, and you're going to grow in your walk with the Lord. And this is so incredible. I, every time I go through Romans 6, 7, 8, God just blesses my heart, opens up new insights to me, and I want to share some of that with you this morning. But let me tell you why it is so important, this series that we've been on called Come, Grow With Me. I mean, I've been saved for 50-some years. I've been pastoring for almost that many years as well. I know I don't look it. That's all right. (laughs) But I'll tell you something. When you made that journey and you're still making it, you understand what this Christian life is about. You understand the the battle that you're in, and, and you're supposed to be close to God. You know, I mean, after all, you've been to Bible college and seminary, and you spend your time in the Word and so forth, and yet you realize, man, this is warfare that we're in. And we do see people who are dropping by the wayside, you know, uh, for whatever reasons, and it can be any reasons, that causes you sort of to give up on this walk with the Lord. It's sort of like, well, God has let me down. He didn't come through like I expected him to come through. But here's another problem. So many people that are saved don't understand the basic foundational precepts of how to go on and walk with the Lord and mature in that walk and that journey and bear much fruit. And I'm sad to say so many churches, they just sort of ignore that. They give you sermons and so forth, but I'll tell you what, I want us to be grounded in the Word of God. It doesn't matter what Bill Walker says, it's what does the Word of God say that we want to mine out and apply to our lives. And so this is so important. And as you've heard me say many, many times over, if you've been here, Romans 6, 7, and 8 are probably, to me, the most important chapters in all those chapters of those 66 books of your Bible. Not that the rest are not important. I mean, they're obviously important to God wouldn't give them. But I'll tell you what, Romans 6, 7, and 8, you've got to get them, dear ones. You and I have got to get them, and through the rest of our journey until we're home, we've got to work them down into our lives. And so we're going to be revisiting this morning Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And I've entitled my message, God's Empowerment for Living Your Christian Life. That's what you want, right? That's what you've been waiting for? God's Empowerment. God's Empowerment. For living your Christian life, no matter what you're going to go through, or going through presently right now. Well, we need to do a little bit of review. And remember back in Romans chapter 6, Paul gave the principles for living the Christian life. The principles for living the Christian life. We saw last week, Romans 7, he shared with us the problem in living the Christian life. And now we come to... God's empowerment or the power for living the Christian life. But let's go back and look at those principles very fast now, very quickly, in Romans 6. The principles for living a Christian life. 
In the first five verses, Paul gives principle number one. He says what? You have died once for all to sin. You know what? A lot of Christians haven't even figured that out. They, they don't believe that. Notice he did not say that sin died in you. He said you died to sin. And he says the reason for that is you have been taken out of Adam and you have been placed in the Lord Jesus Christ who is now your life. Principle number two in verses six and seven of Romans chapter six, he says you have been freed from sin's reign and power by the death of your old man. Now think about that. You've died to sin, but sin still is operative in you. It's alive in you. But he says, listen, you have been freed though from its reign and power. Now you can yield yourself back to it. Don't misunderstand that. And uh, he talks a little bit about that in chapter seven. But what he's saying is, you've also been freed from sin's reign and power. It no longer can command you that you have to yield to it and fall into sin. Why? Because, you see, when you were conceived and born into this world, you were united with Adam, completely sold under sin. And again, out there, the unsaved person, you might be in this church this morning, you may not even comprehend it. God says, listen, when you were born, you were born in union or united to Adam. And he says, I have completely rejected everything that comes from Adam. And that's where the unsaved miss it, and sometimes Christians as well. They think, well, wait a minute, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be religious. I'm going to be morally upright. I'm going to be a very, very good person. I'm going to be very disciplined and give my very best. In fact, I'll even give my, I'll sacrifice. I'll be self-sacrificing. And he says what? You gain, listen to me, you gain absolutely no merit with God. None. Why? He says, I completely rejected Adam and all that comes out of Adam. That's what the unsaved person doesn't comprehend. And so often that's what the saved person doesn't comprehend as well. Who does the Lord receive 100%? His son. His son. And what did he do? He says, all that my son has, he's provided for you. I have placed you in my son. That's who I receive, and therefore I receive you in him. No wonder you come by faith, just as I am. And he will receive you. Well, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God ends, listen, God ends your union with Adam, and he places you in union with his son. That's why Paul, what, what Paul is describing here in verses 6 and 7, as the death of your old man. And when God did that, it ended sin's reign and power in your life, even though sin still resides there. Principle number 3, verses 8 through 11 He says, Christ's relation to sin and to God has now become your relation. You understand that. I mean, if Christ is not my life, his relationship to sin, and he died and paid the price for sin and put it away, and his new relationship has always been to to God, he says that's now your and my relationship in Christ as well. That's uh, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. That's past tense. It's done. Nevertheless, I live. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ 
who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Principle number four, verses 12 through 14, is you are no longer under law, but under grace. Now listen, every person that is born in this world is under law. You say, not the Mosaic law, no, but the moral law of God. He establishes what is right and wrong, and he says, you're under that moral law. Here's the problem with the law. The law demands absolute, can you finish it? Perfection. You can't miss in one point, or God says, you failed. It demands absolute perfection here. And he says, you're born under the law. Here's the problem with the law. It provides absolutely no power for bringing forth that perfection. That's the problem with the law. There's nothing wrong with it. It's good, righteous, and so forth, perfect. But it doesn't provide any power for you and me to produce that and live that righteous life that it demands. Well, that's what the whole Old Testament is all about, that they would discover that. But he says, listen, listen, you have been removed from under law because you died to the law in Christ, and now you are alive in Christ, and you are under grace. We think about that. And grace provides the power, as you're going to see in Romans chapter 8. But he hasn't brought that up yet. We haven't got that yet. Okay, and then principle number 5 out of Romans chapter 6, that's 15 through the end of that chapter, 15 through 23. He says, you are either sin slave or righteousness slave. Look at the fruit that comes from both. The one produces shame and death, and the other produces uh, sanctification, it produces life. He says, why would you not then choose in Christ the the journey of being righteousness, a slave, instead of sins? So by way of review of chapter 6, this is what happened to the man in Romans 6, and if you're saved, it happened to you as well. This is what happened to you if you're a genuine Christian. You were taken out of Adam, and every person born in this world, is in Adam. You were taken out of Adam completely, and you were placed in Christ, and you now, listen to me, you now walk in newness of life. I thought about that. As I read that, that's in chapter 6, verse 4. So that you might walk in newness of life. We talked about that before as we were looking at that text uh, back a few weeks ago. And you say, well, I know what people are thinking. I know what some of you are thinking. Okay, I walk in newness of life when I go to church and I get close to God and, and I ask for forgiveness of my sins and I really have that drive and desire to walk with Him. But I'll tell you what, Monday's coming and i got to go to work and it ain't going to be nice down there and I'll probably not be walking in newness of life Monday, okay? Guess what? He says that is an impossibility. Why? Because of 1 Corinthians one thirty. Christ, and pay attention to the verb tenses, Christ became to you sanctification. Just as He became your righteousness, and He became your redemption. It's amazing, the salvation is all of Christ, isn't He? Isn't it? He became to you your redemption, He became to you your righteousness, because God clothed you with His righteousness, and then He dares say that Christ is also, He has become past tense completed your sanctification. You, if you get that, you'll begin to comprehend what your problem is. Chapter 7. It's you, it's me, trying to live the Christian life. 
and you find a chapter 7, you're an utter failure at that. Amen? That's right. Boy, pay attention to the verb tenses. And so it isn't today Bill is going to walk in newness of life because he wants a paycheck. You didn't laugh. I work one day a week and here I am. So i got to walk in newness of life today, but you wait till tomorrow, man. I'm going to have a lot of fun. Well, my wife will let me. No. Get that down. The tense of those verbs and the, the, the support of that from the Scripture is you as a new person in Christ. He is now your life, always will be your life. You walk in newness of light. As we saw back in 1 John a few weeks ago, you are always walking in the light. Every saved person is light in the Lord, it says. Nail that down. It will help you on this journey. All right. Well, we move on. 1 Corinthians 1, third, let me, let me share that with you again. But by God's doing. Boy, you, you need to mark 1 Corinthians 1, third in your Bible somewhere. You just need to mark that. But by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became who became to us wisdom from God. I'd love to talk on that. I don't have time this morning. And righteousness. And sanctification. That's that godly, holy walk. And redemption. That's your position in Christ that imparted to you these principles for living your Christian life or why you now walk in newness of life. So that's your position. Now work out your position in your practice that's what it says in Second Peter 3.18. But grow, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And by the way, that's what we're trying to do here through the Scripture. We're trying to grow in that grace and knowledge. So now we come to Romans 7. This is interesting to me. The problem in living your Christian life. And you know there's a problem. Every Christian lands in Romans 7. Probably more than we want to. The problem in living your Christian life. And by the way, think about this. You would expect this from the Apostle Paul. I mean, you would expect this from this guy. Why? Because he was a self-starter. He was the best at that. He was extremely motivated. He was a disciplined man, completely committed to his life goals. Any aggressive corporation would have scarfed him up in a moment, knowing that he would really advance their corporation for, because he would be 100% for that corporation. What did he say? He gives his own testimony. Over in Philippians 3, if anyone could have confidence in the flesh, there it is. If anyone could have confidence in the flesh, listen, I want to tell you something. You and I have far more confidence in our capabilities, our flesh, than we want to admit. And we stumble all over the place because of it. If anyone, though, he says, could have confidence in the flesh, he said, uh, I could as a, as to the law. I'm a Pharisee. I mean, man, we kept the law. We added to that law. We kept all those laws. As to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. Wow. This guy said, I can pull this off. I mean, my whole life has been lived that way. This is no problem. I got saved and I can pull this off. But listen, if that would have been true, a whole lot of us would have been left out in the cold. Because I tell you what, I'm not an Apostle Paul. 
I'm not anywhere near his full commitment and zeal and uh, self-discipline and so forth. I'm so thankful for this seventh chapter of Romans where Paul gives his own personal testimony of what? His utter failure when he tried in his own strength to live for God, always doing what was right. He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Listen to his testimony, verse 24. There it is, Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am! What? Wretched man that I am! Who will set me free from this body, of the body of this death? That's his testimony. His answer? Listen to me. Because a lot of churches are built on this. I'm, I'm the good churches. The answer is not in trying harder. How about that? I mean, how often have we been motivated that way? Try harder. Come on, Bill. Try harder. Become more disciplined. Maybe it's in a deeper surrender. If you would just allow us, Bill, we would come forward and we'd come crawling down here in the aisle and we would kneel down here with you. Oh, God, I, 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 you know my heart. I really want to live for you. I don't like the things I've been locked up and bound of. I, I, I want a deeper, I'll, I'll make a deeper commitment to you. I'll surrender more deeply. It's not in that. The devil loves to sell you on that. He goes on. Surely, you and I find ourselves frustrated living in Romans 7. We try so hard. We're told to try hard. Recommit our life and so forth. And yet we come back and say, wretched man that I am. That becomes your my testimony. That becomes a battle that we... Say, that identifies me. By the way, illustration. illustration. Not just Paul. Now, Peter walked with Jesus for three and a half years. I mean, he was number one, uno number one. I mean, the Lord, he, 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 he was very clear that Peter was the top of those 12, okay? He was real close to the Lord. And he said, listen, I'm going to be apprehended. I'm going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, and they're going to crucify. I'm going to die. Three days I'll raise from the dead. And uh, he said, and all of you are going to fall away. And Peter said, what? Exactly what you and I would say. Well, hey, man, I, I go to church. I read the Bible. I pray. Not me, Lord. I will not. No, even if the rest of them do, it will not happen to me. And what happened? You know what happened. I mean, whoa, how could he deny him three times? I'll tell you how he denied him three times. Because he thought in his flesh he could pull it off. And what does God say? Your sanctification has been provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. Get your focus, get your mind on Him, if I may say that early in this message here. So we come now to chapter 8. Empowerment comes through the person of Jesus Christ. We start there. Verses 1 through 4, empowerment comes through the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, we want this power. Please tell us, Lord, about this power. I want to go back to verse uh, twenty. Four of chapter 7 and read down through 8 verse 4. So Romans seven twenty four, Wretched man that I am, Paul says, who will set me free from this body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, Having said that, therefore, there is now, 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled. And what's the next word? In, not by, may be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul began this book of Romans, by the way, in chapter 1. As you know, by declaring that the gospel of God is the, what? Power of salvation, or power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's what, that's how he began. He said the gospel is the power of God, the power of God, get that, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But up to this point, he has dealt with principles rather than power. He said nothing about power. We must know God's principles, though, even though they do not supply that power. But now in Romans 8, we come to the source of that power that we all have longed for in our lives. Paul begins by explaining that empowerment comes through the person of Jesus Christ. It becomes through the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Number one, your outline, he gives us a new freedom. He gives us a new freedom from condemnation. Wages of sin being death. God's law hangs over the head of those, the wrath of God over those who are unsaved. But now you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And what did he say? When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he clothed you with his son's righteousness at that point. And he says, you now have a new freedom from condemnation. Therefore, there is now no, isn't that great? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Your justification, which means God declaring you righteous, as righteous as his son is, since you now possess his son's righteousness, is the opposite of condemnation. Paul explained your justification, chapters 3 through 5. It was based on the work of Christ on the cross. Listen to me, justification, he says, is God's gift to you. It's a gift that he offers freely to the sinner, and it's received by simple faith. Listen to Romans 5.1. Listen carefully to what he says in Romans 5, 1. I'm sorry, 4, verse 5. Romans 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, what does man do? He tries his best to gain merit with God. That's what in Adam you do. But to the one who does not work, but what? believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Isn't it marvelous? Because every one of us is ungodly. Boy, if you're righteous in your own, God can't justify. But he says, I came to justify the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. So do you want to get wonderfully saved, completely forgiven of all your sin? Possess eternal life, know you're going to go to heaven. You know what you do? You come to God and say, look, I'm... I'm not going to try anymore. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be Catholic. I'm not going to be a Baptist. I'm not going to be a Mormon. I'm not going to be a Methodist. I'm not going to be any of that. I'm coming to you and say, I want you, Lord, to justify me. I'm going to put my faith in your son. That's what you do. 
That's what he said again. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Guess what? I qualify. You qualify. If you acknowledge you're a sinner, ungodly, condemned before God, his faith is credited as righteousness. And your new position, how is it? In Jesus Christ, who has now become your life, your righteousness, your holy walk or sanctification, your redemption, has forever, listen, it's forever removed all condemnation from you in the eyes of God. You are forever free from all and any condemnation. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I want to say this. Pay attention to the tenses of the verbs in your Bible. It's amazing. If you do that, you get this issue settled. But so many don't. Therefore, they think after they're saved, they can lose their salvation. That cannot happen. God is accurate to his word. He's always faithful to the word. God in Christ has given you a new freedom, freedom from any and all condemnation, even though, listen, you said, we always said, sin's still alive in you, even though you've died to sin. It's still alive in you, he says in Romans 6. So how do I know that, that I've been free from that condemnation when I fall into sin as a believer? Well, Romans 8, 1 says that. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But let's go over to 1 John chapter 2. You need not turn to verses 1 and 2. He says, my little children. Who's he writing to? Say people. My little children. So he's writing to believers. Those who have put their faith in Christ. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin. Oh, that captured me. We have an advocate, a lawyer with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation, the satisfaction, uh, if you please, for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Listen, Satan accuses you night and day before God, and it doesn't do him a bit of good. Because Jesus says, I've already paid for Bill's sins. Paid in full. So God will eventually cast him out of heaven because of that. I'm talking about Satan, not Bill, okay? Get that straightened, okay? (laughs) But you cannot live the victorious Christian life or effectively serve the Lord as long as you're unsure of your standing before God. Let me say it again. If you can't get it settled whether you're saved or not, or I was saved today but tomorrow I've lost my salvation, you're not going to be effective for God. You're not going to enjoy your walk with the Lord. And God says, I want you to get that settled based on what I say, not on you. Boy, how important that is. As you know, this is the chapter that begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation. What a great chapter. And I could hardly do it justice this morning, but we're going to try. Number two, not only does he give us a new freedom from condemnation, he gives us a new position. You see that? A new position. In him. In him. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are In Christ Jesus. Paul described how that came about and exactly what that means back in chapter 6. We've looked at that. The moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ to save you, God ended your union with Adam forever and began a new wonderful union with his son who became your life. That's why God tells you in Romans 6, 4, you now walk in newness of life. And by the way, if there's no evidence of that in your walk with the Lord, the question is, did you really get saved? 
I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation, but that's what he says. If you, if you, if you are in Christ, there you walk in newness of life. You have to weigh that out there. And because of your new position in Christ, judgment cannot fall upon you because God's judgment has already fallen upon His Son who took your place. And now that you are in Christ, you have become one of God's redeemed children, having been put into the family of God, into the household of grace. God chastens and disciplines His children, but He never condemns them. Amen? Amen. So do you see why grace both motivates and empowers you to live for God rather than to live a life of sin? Over and over, Paul loved that phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He loved that phrase and used it so much, didn't he? Well, number three, not only did he give you a new position in Christ, he gives us a new law of life. A new law of life. Verses 2 through 4. Let me read that again. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You don't have to walk in sin. For what the law could not do, it demanded, but it could not supply the power for you to live victoriously and perfectly. Weak as it was through the flesh, God did it. He provided that perfection. How did he do it? That righteousness? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled. What is the requirement? What is the requirement that God demands of you and me? What is it? Absolute, perfect righteousness. I can't pull that off. He said, don't worry, Bill. I did. My son did, and now I place you in him, and you now are clothed with his righteousness. Amazing truths. Amazing truths. As we saw in Romans 7, sin definitely is not dead or inoperative in my body, even though I have gotten saved and am now in Christ. And this is a further explanation, if you please, in development of that principle in Romans 6, verses 6 and 7, that sin's reign and power have been broken. Why? Because God ended my union with Adam and began this new union with his son, who is now my life. There's now a new law at work in you. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What a great statement from God when you think about that. Set me free from the law of sin and death. Talk about higher power. Think about that one. That's incredible higher power. God, listen, I want you to get this. God introduces for the first time here in chapter 8, God the Holy Spirit. And you're going to meet him 16 more times in this chapter. That's amazing. Just as an airplane does not destroy the law of gravity to fly, but rather utilizes the principle of wind dynamics to overcome the pull of gravity, even so, at present, God does not destroy sin that dwells in your and my body. It's still there. But rather, listen to this, he empowers us to overcome that sin by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what Paul had to learn in chapter 7. He couldn't do it merely by self-effort or trying harder or making a greater commitment or a more disciplined life on his own. He said, you can't do it. Why? Because Christ has become your holiness, your sanctification, your godly walk. That's why. 
By the way, Christ both made this power available to you, but he also demonstrated it in his own life. Did you know that when he was here for those 33 years or so, he never relied, get this, he never relied on his being deity, not once. That's what it says over in Philippians chapter 2. How did he overcome the temptation? You say, well, he's God. Yes, that's true, but he never relied on being God. He relied on the indwelling Holy Spirit. Just like he says, you and I are to rely on the indwelling Holy Spirit, saying, if it worked for me, Jesus would say, it will work for you. I sure and guarantee that. Remember, he didn't rely on his being deity. He relied on the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Empowerment comes through the person of Jesus Christ. But now we're introduced to this other part in your outline. Empowerment comes through this indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, this is said this first time he's introduced him here in chapter 8, and he does so for 16 more times. That's verses 5 through 27. We're not going to deal with all of it, but having introduced us to the Holy Spirit, we're now told more about his ministry that empowers us. Number one, he gives a new life direction. We know that to be true. He gives you and me a new life direction. Verses 5 through 8, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. I want you to do something, if you don't mind writing in your Bible. Go back up just above chapter 7, verse 25, and write in bold block letters, practice, that relates to verse 25. This will help you here. Write in bold block letters, or put in your notes there, on 725, chapter 7, the word practice. When you get to verse 5 of chapter 8, put just above that in block letters, position. You're going to have to keep those two separated. Position. 725. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my faith, with, with my flesh, the law of sin. That's Paul's practice. That's Paul's practice. Because you're going to be dealing with this word flesh. You've got to understand how he's should. When you hit chapter 8, verse 5, you've got position. For those who are according to the flesh... Set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those are unsaved people. That's their position. And those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. That's position. That's what he's been developing in chapter 6. Let me read on. Verse 6, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not even subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, verse 9, you need to put in block letters, position. You're back to position here. However, you are not in the flesh, but in The Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. You should obviously see he's speaking there of your position. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And when you drop down to verse 13, we're ahead of ourselves there, but put there the word practice. Now the flesh, he's tied back to practice again. Same as he was up in chapter 7, verse 25. 
For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. And I'd have to explain that death. He's not talking about spiritual death there. But if that's a more of a metaphor of what he's describing your condition. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That will help you with that word flesh to understand, is he talking about my position or is he talking about my practice? That will help you when you go through Romans chapter 8. But we need to move on here. So this new life that you and I now possess is first and foremost a spiritual transformation. Though our bodies continue to corrupt and die, our spirit has just begun to live and will continue to live with the divine life forever. Amen. The Holy Spirit now permanently indwells us and he promotes this new spiritual life. That's why verse 4 says we do not walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the Spirit. In this new life direction you now possess, you also know that though you are no longer in the flesh and you've died to sin, sin is still very much alive in you. Romans 8.13 tells you how to overcome sin's constant demands. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit, that's what Paul had to learn in chapter 7. If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And Galatians 5.16 says, if we walk by the Spirit, we'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. But listen, don't fall back into the slew of despond of chapter 7. You do not overcome sin within you by your sheer determination and willpower. And my, how we try that. Because we long to overcome sin. I know there's pleasure in sin for a season, but we don't want to fall into sin. And so we try with our sheer willpower. You do, you do so rather by the Spirit's available power within you. It requires an act of your will, but it is accomplished by the Spirit as you respond to Him. You need an illustration. This helped me. I'm going to use myself personally. Some of you know I don't sleep. I haven't slept for years. I just don't sleep. I, I'm not happy about that. I'm working on that, by the way. I always think, well, one day I'll be prone and, you know, there, I'll sleep there. Okay. I don't sleep. I get tired. The older I get, the tired I get. Some of you can identify with this. And so sometimes uh, I don't earn my paycheck. I'll go home like 2 o'clock and I'll say, you know, I'm just going to lay down. Just lay down for maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half. That might help. By the way, I hardly ever get to sleep. It's one of those things where if I'm almost ready to drop off, I wake myself up. I don't, I hate that. But... I guess I'm wearing out. So this past week, I'm, I'm laying on my bed there, and I think, you know, this, is, this feels sort of good, though. You know, it's nice to lay down and, you know, just kind of waste that hour, hour and a half, you know, and whatever. And I'm thinking, you know what? I could do that. I know what the outcome of this is going to be. I'm going to get up after an hour, and, and I'll, it, it sort of rejuvenates me, okay? It does, you know, you older people understand what I'm talking about, okay? Sort, sort, of, sort of rejuvenates you. But I thought, you know what, maybe, maybe what I ought to do is, is get up and take the wolf, my dog, and go on my walk. Now, my walk, go down to 59th Street, and 59th Street's like this. Why I like it. Now, Mary will walk for 5, 10 miles, not anymore, but, uh, she, you know, she, she, on a flat surface, you know, although she likes hiking. That's not for me. She said, honey, do you want to go on a hike? No. Call one of the ladies. Call Priscilla. Call somebody. Kathy. No, I don't want to go on a hike for half a day or all day. Okay. Once in a while, I do my honey do thing once a year. Okay, but anyway. But I can drive to 59th Street, and it's just like this. The dog and I get out, 
and we walk as fast as we can up that hill. It takes me about 20 minutes to a half hour, that's all. And then back down, get back in the pickup, drive home. Interesting thing happened. I decided not to lay there. I decided, okay, with my will, I made an action. I said, I'm going to go on my walk. So I did that. I got up. I'm still tired, you know. I get up, get in the pickup, drive there, and out we go. We go up that hill. When I walk as briskly as I can up that hill, something happened. You know what happened. Energy began to be released. Now, follow this. Energy began to be released. And I get back, and I don't need to lay down. I'm fine. I went out and did some other chores because of that. What's my point? The Holy Spirit resides in you as a believer, and He's ready to release the power, but He doesn't release it until you act with your will. Just like I decide, no, I won't lay there. I will get up. What do I mean by act by my will? Maybe it's a time to pray. Maybe it's a time to open the Scripture and say, Lord, I want to look at the Scriptures and get something out of the Scriptures that's going to encourage me and empower me. Maybe it's a time to get some encouragement from another brother and sister. But the Holy Spirit says, I'm ready, Bill, to release my energy, my power. But it's left in your will whether you're going to let me do that or not. You say, well, how do you know that? I'll tell you how, because of Paul's prayer. Let's go to number two, though. We've got to move through this. Number two. He gives a new source of power. Himself. It's verses 9 through 27. We saw the frustration in Romans 7. It involved ones having the desire to live a righteous life for God without having the power to do that. All that self-effort, all the that you might have exerted could not produce godly living. But the inner presence of God, the Holy Spirit, provides power beyond measure. And here's what Paul prayed, and we'll look at this again next week, but Ephesians chapter 3, 19. I'm sorry, 16. He prayed. Now remember, he's praying this. That means it's not happening necessarily, but God wants it to happen. He's praying this for believers. That God would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. He had to pray that for a believer? He had to pray that for you and me? Oh God, I pray that they would be strengthened with power through His Spirit, through your Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's already dwelling in your heart, he says, but he wants to take control. He wants to release that power. What kind of power are we talking about? So he goes on at the end of that chapter. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or think according to the power that works within us in Christ Jesus. That's what kind of power we're talking about. Listen to Romans, according to Romans 8.11, the same Holy Spirit power. Look at verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He's not talking about your mortal body being given life going to heaven. That's called an immortal body. But this is good. My mortal body has that sin nature in me, if you please, and it's very much alive. And so that's where the struggle's going on. But he says, listen, the same power that the Holy Spirit had who raised Jesus up from the dead, that same power is available to you to give life to your mortal body. Wow. I'd call that power. I'd call that. You see why this is such an incredible chapter? My. And so he gives the source the new power. It's himself. Romans 8.11 confirms that. 
And he goes on and talks about that power the Holy Spirit gives. He says, the same Holy Spirit power leads you and causes you to recognize your sonship. It testifies to your spirit that you're a child of God. Listen, has that happened to you? Does, does the Holy Spirit testify to you that you are a child of God? Even more, you're a son, you're even an heir. He says, that's what the Holy Spirit power does. It testifies to your spirit that you're a child of God destined to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes and sets up his earthly kingdom. By the way, goes on and says it's the same power that will remove the curse that's been on this earth for thousands of years. Man, when that power redeems your body, now we're talking about the glorified body, he said that same power will remove the curse over the whole world, the whole universe. That's power. That's what God wants you and me to understand and experience in our lives. In fact, and this really helps me, because I struggle with my brothers and sisters. Maybe it's one of those things where you kind of find yourself thinking about taking their place or whatever, that are suffering, and I mean they're suffering and losing their lives. They're suffering severely for the cause of Christ. He says, I even impart power for them who are suffering that way. That's in this text. He's covered it all, hasn't he? Amazing power that we have in the Holy Spirit. But not just does it come through the Lord Jesus Christ, does it come through this indwelling Holy Spirit, but listen, it also comes, this empowerment comes through the purpose of our Heavenly Father. This is amazing. Comes through the purpose of our Heavenly Father, verses 8 through 39. As you carefully read Romans 8, you find all three persons of the Trinity committed to your salvation and your journey through this life and getting you to heaven. that good? All three of them are there. We've seen the power provided through the Lord Jesus Christ as well as that power provided through God the Holy Spirit. We've gone rather quickly over that. But we now come to God the Father, verses 28 through 39. And the first thing we're told about the empowerment that comes through the purpose of him, or, or through the purpose of our Heavenly Father is this. Number one, He providentially directs all things for our good. When you see this bigger picture here, put things in their place, the puzzle pieces. Empowerment comes through the purpose of our Heavenly Father. He providentially directs all things for our good. We love verse 28. I'm not sure we really comprehend it, but he says, And we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is such a precious verse and promise from our Heavenly Father. All things mean exactly that. Everything. Events, circumstances, problems, people, accidents, tragedies, and everything else. means it all. Your Heavenly Father tells you they don't just come into your life by happenstance. What are you going through right now? What is it that you wonder, why am I going through this? Where is God? What, what's the purpose for this? It's as if, as if he doesn't love me, it's as if he doesn't care for me, he's not interested in my life. No, he says, listen, rather in my sovereign control and absolute knowledge, I've determined what is allowed to touch your life. And he says, I want to tell you this, I want to tell you why I designed it. I'll tell you exactly why I designed it. I am in the process of conforming you to be just like my son. Isn't that good? I mean, after all, you're going to reign with him. You think there might be a little bit of preparation for reigning with Christ? During that millennial reign, that thousand-year reign. Not only that, he says, you're being prepared to be my son's bride. God knows exactly what you and I need to go through, and he never makes a mistake. 
Notice how God identifies those included in his plan from both the human side and the divine side. They are those who love God. That's the human side. And then those who are called according to his purpose. That's the divine side. How does your heavenly fathers providentially directing all things for your good empower you? Does not the Holy Spirit use this great truth to move and motivate you to live for God, to keep on trusting Him, no matter what God allows to come into your life? Do not your problems drive you to your Heavenly Father in prayer, as well as drive you more deeply into His Word? And as God uses His various tools, if I might call them, all those all things there, to refine you, does not your faith grow, and you become that more deeply in love with your Heavenly Father? your Lord and Savior, and you bear that much more fruit for His glory. That's what it's all about, dear ones. Oh, we even sung about trusting the sovereignty of God in all the aspects of our life. But number two, He predestined believers for glory. It's great. So let me tell you the outcome. Let me tell you why I saved you. Why tracked you down, and called you. I'm predestined. I already predestined you for glory. Verses 29 and 30, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, you know that old word predestination, predetermined, and so forth, he also called. I mean, in fact, he says you were chosen before the foundation of the world over in Ephesians 1. Okay, so before the foundation of the world, before he ever created the earth, he already chose you. How about that? That's great. That's incredible. But if he chose you, if somewhere long after you're born, he's got to call you. You know what would be good if he called some of you right now? If you're here and you're not saved and you don't put your faith in Jesus Christ, it might be he will call you this day. This will be the day of your call. And you say, boy, there's a tugging going on in my heart, and I sense I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that I now what the Bible says that the Bible's true, and I've got to believe it's true, that if I die in this condition, I'm going to go to hell and be tormented day and night forever and ever. But God sent his son to take my place. He bore all my sin. He bore all my judgment and punishment. And then God says, I want to show you how I'm my satisfaction, I raised my son up on the third day to declare I'm satisfied with the payment that he did in full. And you say, then what do I do? He said, what? He justifies the ungodly who believe in him. That's what he said. So here's an ungodly person. I was an ungodly person. I said, I want to believe in you. I'm going to trust you. I'm taking you, Jesus, to be saved. What happened? He justified me. He placed me. He took me out of Adam, placed me in Christ, and he said, you are now clothed with my son's righteousness. I have redeemed you. He is now even your holy walk. I've given you my wisdom from him. I mean, it's amazing, all in Christ Jesus. He predestined the believer for glory. Look at the, consider this end goal. God tells you in these verses exactly what he has planned for you and why he tracked you down and wonderfully saved you. If God saved you, you will be glorified. Did you get that? If God saved you, you will be glorified. No question about, will I go to heaven or not? No, you'll be glorified. God does not lose a single one of those he redeemed through his son. He loses not one. 
He will succeed in conforming each and every one of us of his redeemed children to the image of his son. Everyone. Philippians 1.6, we love that verse. For I am confident, Paul says of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. Bring it to completion, to perfection, to glorification until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6. Listen to Jesus' own words. Let it come out of his mouth. John 6.39, he said, This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up in the last day. For this is the will of him, of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. And do we not love what he said in John chapter 10? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. They'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What a tremendous promise from God. I'm the sinner who put my faith in Jesus Christ, and I have eternal life. I have complete forgiveness. His plan has been revealed. He intends to glorify Bill Walker. And I trust that's true of you. Your glorification is so certain with God that he puts it in the past tense. I said pay attention to the verbs. Verse 30, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. So when he called you and you heard the gospel and you put your faith in him, he what? He justified you, placed you in Christ, and he became your righteousness. And these whom he justified, look what he does. He also glorified. Amazing. God says it's, a, it's such an absolute certain deal I put it in the past tense. Now here's this to be considered. You're also in the process of being glorified. Second Corinthians 3.18 But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. I think this is the mirror. We look at the scriptures, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. That's a word, metamorphosis. We are being transformed right now from glory to glory as by the Spirit, as by, by God the Spirit. So, That's why we're in church. That's why we spend time in the Word. That's why we pray. That's why we want to walk in the power of the Spirit. Because we are being transformed from glory to even greater glory to even greater glory until finally He takes us home, redeems the body, and it's full, complete glory. I said it's a so great a salvation. It is such a so great a salvation. Number three, He is the supreme judge of the universe and has declared himself for us. He is the supreme judge of the universe, and has declared himself for us. Here's what God is telling you in these verses. Having given us his only Son, will he not also give us all things necessary to accomplish his goal of glorifying us in our behalf? Look at verse 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? 
And since His is the highest court in the whole universe, and He is the presiding supreme judge who has ruled already in your and my favor, who will bring a charge to God's elect? Verses 33 and 34. Who would even dare to come before this awesome, majestic judge who has ruled in our favor and through his son completely forgiven us and made us his precious children? Who would dare to come before him and bring a charge against us when all the court of heaven is for us? Satan, our arch enemy, is there and he can get nowhere in this, according to Revelation chapter 12. Then who can? What a tremendous passage. And God says, I'm going to get you home to glory. So why not walk with me now in the power of the Spirit and begin to produce fruit? My. But what about some other unforeseen foe? What about that person or that thing? Could he or it arise and affect your separation as one of God's redeemed children and cause God to sever his special love for you as one of his own? By the way, some of us believe that. It's sad. Some of us fall into Satan's trap of believing that because God allowed something to happen to us and we didn't go back there and walk in the power of the Spirit and see God's plan and that is to conform us to the image of His Son and just trust Him even though I don't understand why I must go through this. But trust Him and so we get to the place of depression, discouragement, despair and say, well, God has turned His back on me. He says, who in the world could do that? What could do that? And Paul, by the way, went through all of this. Perhaps the devil has gotten you to think that might be possible. In answer to what Paul shouts, he shouts a challenge to the most vicious conceivable enemies that one might confront and declares that nothing in all creation is able to separate you from God. Nothing! God makes them all his instruments in his hands that he uses to refine and perfect you, making you more and more like his precious son, preparing you for your day of glory. My, read, follow along as I read verses 35 through 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? What about sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. That's interesting. No wonder the faith chapter is so profound and so necessary. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And for many of God's people, that's exactly where they live their life until they're taken home. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. He will bring us safely home to glory. And even create greater glory for us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in where Christ Jesus our Lord. You say, yeah, but he left out sin. No, he didn't. He started that with chapter, verse 1. He dealt with sin, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation no separation. So God's empowerment for living the Christian life, we saw it in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he provided in chapter 8. We saw it in the Holy Spirit, what he's providing. And now we see it in the very empowerment that comes through God's purpose of our Heavenly Father. As I close this morning, I think of a song we're going to sing. And you can understand why I would choose this after looking at Romans 8 with you. Listen to the words. 
And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love! How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. This is the call. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Listen to this last verse. No condemnation now I dread. This is, what glory? What blessing? No condemnation now I dread. Some of you say you look back and Satan points out your sin and the depth of your sin and how deep and how long you're in it. Listen, he says, no condemnation now I dread. God says there is therefore now, what? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed with righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? What words? That's Romans 8. Heavenly Father, what a great hymn of the faith penned by Charles Wesley a man who knew you and knew your scriptures so well. And what a tremendous hymn when we look at Romans chapter 8. Oh God, help us to move out of chapter 7 in this frustration and futility of trying so hard to live the Christian life. Let us rather get up out of bed and begin to walk with you, Holy Spirit, and let you release that power in our lives that we might know it is you, Christ, who is our sanctification, not us trying harder, not us being more committed. It is you and focusing our mind and our heart upon you. As I said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Oh, how we pray that this will be a victorious week, walking with you, bearing much fruit. And as John the Apostle prayed, Lord, and it's more and more upon my heart, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Even so, come quickly. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.